Welcome to the Jewish Museum Milwaukee. My name is Ellie Gettinger. I'm the Education Director here, and I am thrilled to welcome you to, you to this conversation between these public radio personas, masterminds, great. Um, and I think this is going to be a really exciting conversation that we are going to have tonight about this experience, about uh, Tony's experience, about his father, about uh, a number of things related to the blacklist. We are really excited. When we can take history and personalize it, it makes everything more exciting. In creating this exhibit, I have to thank our very generous sponsors, um, the, the Windover Foundation, Joel and Karen, Karen Quadrachi, the Brico Fund, Marianne and Sheldon, Sheldon V. Lubar, and an anonymous fund of the Jewish Community Foundation. Um, and I also need to thank our awesome programming partners, Wisconsin Public Radio, who did an amazing job of helping us connect with Steve and do PR and marketing for this program. And so we are so excited to have them here tonight. And to welcome you here further is Lisa Nalbandian. Thanks, Killer. You got it. Uh, <laughs> regional manager for Wisconsin Public Radio. Hi. Um, thank you, everyone, for being here tonight. We are just, just pleased and honored to be a sponsor of this program. Um, we've been working with the Jewish Museum Milwaukee now for a handful of years and just thrilled for this partnership and really honored to be part of the programming tonight. Um, and we're really, really um, excited to have Steve Paulson from, to the best of our knowledge, able to have the conversation with Tony. And I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but Steve is a Milwaukee native, so it's an extra treat to have him back in his hometown. <laughs> And similar to what was said before, you know, you think about um, this exhibit and the conversation that we're about to enjoy now. It's exactly what we do on the Ideas Network every single day. So to be able to do it in a room, live and in person, is even more of a treat. So thank you again for being here tonight. And I would be remiss if I didn't do all my plugs, but after tonight, remember you can hear Says You on 8 a.m. on Sundays with Tony on 90.7. And of course, to the best of our knowledge, Saturdays at 3 o'clock and on Sundays at 1 o'clock on 90.7. So again, thank you so much. So, without further ado, it is my pleasure to introduce our moderator, Steve Paulson. He's the executive producer of the Peabody Award-winning radio program, to the best of our knowledge, which is produced at Wisconsin Public Radio and syndicated by PRX. His radio reports have been broadcast on NPR's Morning Edition and All Things Considered. For the past seven years, he has co-organized and moderated the annual series of panel discussions at the New York Academy of Sciences, including the Emerging Science of Consciousness, Rethinking Mortality and the Will to Meaning. Steve has written for Salon and Slate and pretty much every other thing that you can imagine. And his book is Adams and Eden, Conversations on Religion and Science. And it was published by Oxford University Press. Tony uh, has produced uh, and worked in various media, but is best known for his work in public radio and is a regular panelist on the NPR quiz show Says You. He also produced and directed the WGBH Morning uh, program that's in Boston, Morning Stories, and he hosted its podcast version. Um, and then he also has produced and directed uh, and narrated Blacklisted, a six-part radio series about his childhood, childhood as a son of Blacklisted screenwriter. So I'm going to turn it over to both of you, and I am so excited to hear this conversation. Oh, okay. <laughs> 
drink? Is it on? No. Okay, we'll do a little sound check here. This is what radio people do. Uh, and in public radio, they try to find a salary someplace else. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> no, I have to say that, uh, as Lisa mentioned, I grew up in Milwaukee, and I actually learned to swim at the Jewish Community Center. Uh, so my very first stroke that I ever actually was able to stay afloat was just uh, over there. So it's sort of delightful to be here, and it's a pleasure to share the stage with you, Tony. Um, Likewise, you. So let me, let me start with a basic question. The, I know the Hollywood blacklist had a profound effect on you, of course, on your uh, family. It ended a long time ago. It ended more than half a century ago. Uh, why does this history still matter? Because it's relevant. It was a, a big struggle where both sides called each other un-American, which makes it a very American story. You had people who thought that people who were left-wing were agents of the Soviet Union, and you had people on the left-wing who thought that right-wingers were fascists, were trying to deprive the entire country of its freedom of speech. When did the communist scare hit the movie industry? Around the time that the country was beginning to realize that the Soviet Union was no longer an ally, and that the world was facing the prospect of a a potential third world war that would destroy all mankind. So there was fear in the air. And when there's fear in the air, very often uh, a talented politician will see an opportunity. If people are scared of something, well, then you can take their fear and possibly manipulate it into a fear not of an enemy, but a fear of not looking patriotic enough. Uh, there have been many periods, not only in our history, but in other countries' history, where the call to nationalism <clears throat> is usually uh, voiced by somebody who has uh, an agenda other than patriotism. And we had some very talented people who were whipping up a lot of, um, a lot of fear, uh, even before Joseph McCarthy, your native son. <laughs> Uh, I don't blame Wisconsin. In fact, I think Wisconsin is the most amazing state because it has to deal with very strong differences of opinion all the time. But as I said, when you have a talented politician who knows that people are scared of something, it's not difficult to get them to believe that, well, focus your fear on a particular enemy, characterize that enemy as a great danger, and then get people so whipped up that if they don't behave as if they're patriotic, then they run the risk of being looked at as possibly uh, friends of the enemy. And in Hollywood, um, there was a terrible need to align itself politically with what was going on, because during World War II, it produced movies that were pro-Soviet. And after the war, it was necessary to make a pivot. Was the fear specifically that there were going to be pro-Soviet movies or that sort of communist messages would be sort of infiltrating into the movies? One of the strategies was to call people, and that included my father, who had been identified by the FBI as very left-wing and possibly members of the Communist Party, and question them and get them to admit they were communists. <coughs> It so happened that the, the strategy of the people who were called by the committee to testify to what they believed in decided that they were going to fight the committee and attack its right to ask that question. 
this was a strategy, and in retrospect, it, it probably backfired. But they said, we hate the committee, and if the committee asks us if we're communists, we're going to tell them they have no right to know what our political affiliations are. Well, if you've seen any of the footage, and you can see it in, in this um, uh, exhibit, uh, of the hearings that happened in Washington, it became a scream fest and made huge headlines and scared the executives of the movie industry eventually to decide that the, a good strategy to show they were patriotic was to insist that anybody who was identified as a communist say he was not a communist if he was going to get a job. And it's worth pointing out, I mean, there were a lot of communist sympathizers yes. in Hollywood, if not actual members of the Communist Party. The entire liberal community of Hollywood, when the hearings began, rose up in support of the people who had been called communists, as liberals will, as, as people on the left will, to support people farther to the left in this case. But as soon as it became clear that the movie industry had its act together and was going to not hire anybody who looked suspect, then those members of that liberal community began to disappear. I experienced this not politically at all. I experienced this as a three-year-old child, four-year-old child, five-year-old child, growing up in a family where my father had been one of the victims and one of the targets of the FBI. Well, we should put this in perspective. So your father had been, Gordon Kahn, had been a very successful screenwriter. And He'd been your, a very your, active your, one. Your family was living in Beverly Hills, was living the good life. So I'm told, <laughs> carpets up to here, French poodle, no swimming pool, but only because, uh, I don't know, we had something else in the backyard. My father went from being able to work as a screenwriter to being identified as a possible communist to losing his job to having no more income. So we sold the house and we moved to a different part of Los Angeles, Studio City. So your father was this very successful screenwriter, as were you know a number of these other people who were you know people of the left working in Hollywood. Suddenly they were you know uh, their reputation was being questioned. Take us through those that first year or two of what happened to to your father and uh, how he how he ended up being blacklisted. Blacklisting was never an official uh, policy. It was people being scared enough of being seen to hire you if you either had been attacked directly by the committee or were friendly with somebody who had been attacked by, by the committee. So the phone would stop ringing. People would not necessarily know unless they had been specifically told by a producer that their name was Mud and they couldn't function anymore. And as the blacklist went on, it became more instituted so that at some point you actually had a publication called Red Channels, which would have on it the names of people that people in the industry were not to hire. So that's, again, this was never official. It was just something that developed and there were people who saw opportunities to make a nice living, making lists of people. Uh, people were encouraged to inform on any neighbor or colleague that they thought might be suspicious. And when the blacklist finally went away, about 15 years later and about a year after my father died, it disappeared in sort of the same way that it originally advanced. 
little by little, as people began to realize that there was no longer any danger in hiring anybody who had been <coughs> identified as uh, too far to the left to, be, to make you comfortable. There were moments, and dramatic moments, where a screenwriter like Dalton Trumbo was finally publicly announced as being the screenwriter of uh, it was either Exodus or Spartacus. But basically, it came down to whether you, as a producer, were willing to take the chance that if you hired, say, someone like my father, you wouldn't be boycotted or you wouldn't be called up by the FBI or whatnot. And people looked around eventually and they said, you know, it's safe. Mm -hmm. And in fact, those were some of the very same people who then said, the blacklist, I was against it all along. Well, take us back to 1947. So the House Un-American uh, Activities Committee, HUAC, uh, they had these very well-publicized hearings uh, where there's always Hollywood stars and uh, writers were hauled before the committee and, and uh, compelled to testify, including some who didn't want to. And your, your father was subpoenaed, right? They tried to find people whom the FBI had identified as possible communists and, and get them to confess they were communists. The next stage was, let's not try to find communists ourselves. Let's have people tell us who the communists are. Uh, or if they were communists, let's have them renounce their communism and to prove that they're loyal, mention some people who are still communists. So that was the period of what's called naming names. It began as a big ideological fight, you know, a fight for the meaning of the First Amendment, whether you're a leftist or a rightist. But as the years went by, if you talked to anybody who had been a victim of the blacklist and you asked them what they were most upset about, I would say to a person they would say that they had been named and betrayed by their friends. The ideology of the struggle sort of evaporates through time. And here we are, what is Russia to us now? Very different from what the Soviet Union was. So things change, but the fundamental human tragedy that people who went through it seemed to feel happened was that they lost trust with their friends. And that fundamental sense of decency uh, was gone. Any one of these people who did not name names, and my father was one of them, would probably say, I wasn't brave. It didn't take courage. I, I didn't learn this in school. I did it because if I named my friends, I wouldn't be able to live with myself. So that fundamental aspect, call it character, it, it's a mystery and you don't often know until the time comes which way you might go yourself. Because believe me, we had friends who up until the night before they testified before the <coughs> committee said, don't worry. I won't name your name. So, so tell us about what happened specifically to your father then. So, Well, my father was, was blacklisted. Mm -hmm. He was not sent to jail because he was not one of the first 10 people that the committee called, those so-called Hollywood 10. He was a group of 19. So he was to, if, they, if the committee had resumed his hearings, he would have been the next. But because he wasn't, he wasn't facing jail time. He wrote Hollywood on trial, this book. He looked for work. 
He wrote yeah. Hollywood on Trial a year before, a year after this. A right? year after. I mean, that that took a lot of guts to to write this book. You know, guts. in the middle of all the McCarthy's hysteria. If he were here, he would say, "Guts is not a part of my anatomy here." You know, <laughs> I, I it was something I did in support of the fight that the first group of ten were making to take the case all the way up to the Supreme Court because they were being charged with contempt of Congress for refusing to be nice to the House and American Activities Committee. So um, he did that. He probably got a few jobs until he was told that he couldn't write anymore under his own name. He may have tried to get a few other jobs by using another name, I'm not sure. But Around 1950, rumors were spreading throughout Hollywood that the committee was going to come and start the hearings again, and that they had a subpoena for my father. So he decided to flee the subpoena that he knew was coming and go to Mexico. The reason I think he went to Mexico, Steve, was that at the time, and this tells you something also about the fear, the daily fear that people were experiencing, there were rumors spreading that the Cold War had gotten so intense at that point, and we were fighting China, um, Korean War was going on, or about to, that the J. Edgar Hoover had a plan to imprison in concentration camps anybody who was suspect in the event of a national emergency. And they were going to be using the very same uh, prisons that had been used for Japanese Americans during World War II, plus a whole bunch of others that they were going to build. So at that point, with the committee coming back again and the uncertainty of what they might do or what might happen next, <coughs> my father thought that the, 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 the virtuous and smart thing to do was to flee the country. So uh, when I was about five um, in 1950, he hopped in the car the very day that he heard that a subpoena was coming, uh, told my brother, older brother and me he was going to San Francisco so that we would not have any reliable information in case we were asked, and went to Mexico. And once he had found a place for us to live, and once my mother had managed to sell the house, and it was, believe me, a buyer's market if they knew you had been blacklisted. So uh, once he could sell the house, uh, we went down and joined him in Mexico. And he but were you in contact? Was, was your family in contact with him when he first went down to Mexico? When he first went down, nobody knew the degree of surveillance or what J. Edgar Hoover might do next. So there was no telephone communication between them. I, they exchanged letters through a third party, somebody, uh, perhaps a friend of his in Hollywood, I'm not sure. Um, and. Um, the, uh, the FBI certainly came checking to see if my mother knew where he was. That was very harassing. Um, so uh, we went down there. We joined him uh, and lived in Mexico for, for five years. For five years. Well, we remained to some degree under surveillance in Mexico. Uh, people were always afraid that um, there were uh, FBI agents, and there may or may not have been. I don't know for sure. But there were, I have seen my father's FBI file, and I do know that there were reports that went to J. Edgar Hooper from people in Mexico, who they were, people who knew us, possibly even friends. Uh, there, were, there was a, a, a 
very large FBI file on your father, right? Uh, about 3,000 pages uh, with a lot of material redacted. And I mean, you've probably seen lately in, on TV a lot of redacted material. <laughs> well, what kind of information did they have? What kind of surveillance had been That's going on? That's a wonderful question. Uh, I did not look at my father's FBI file for many years. And uh, I, it was radioactive. I didn't want to. I didn't want to know what was in there. And I think I may even have worried that maybe they had something on my father because it was 3,000 pages. Was he a member of the Communist Party? He may or may not have been. I asked him once, and he said, who wants to know? <laughs> if he was a member of the Communist Party, and frankly, I think he was, <laughs> He joined it in the 30s when it had a somewhat different significance from what it did during the Cold War. As a Hollywood communist, he had absolutely no opportunity if he had any inclination to do anything seditious. Because in Hollywood, if you're a writer, you have no power whatsoever. There was no propaganda in the movies. And I think my father was too much of a, a um, of an original and a very independent thinking guy to have gone along with party discipline. But you said that when you started finally going into the archives, looking into this history, you were worried you were going to find something. Exactly. Um, I thought the hundreds, if not thousands of dollars of taxpayer money that had gone into collecting an FBI file on my father had to have been fueled by some kinds of profound suspicions. Um, maybe he did love Joe Stalin more than he loved his own family, right? You know, uh, It turns out that the FBI didn't deserve the I part at all. They never investigated anything. So when I finally did get to the point where I could read these files, I, I would see a lot of accusations that would be made presumably by colleagues or neighbors or friends, and no effort whatsoever to check it out. Um, and I know that J. Edgar Hoover was personally involved in my father's case because he had these marginal notes in his rather loopy um, handwriting, saying this man must be actively pursued or you know, get this guy. What, what I learned from the FBI files, besides the fact that the FBI did no investigating at all, were some fascinating things about people. Uh, one of the things I learned about my father, which I never knew, was that he was an honest guy. He was constitutionally incapable of not keeping a promise. And when he would make a promise to try to pay somebody back because he needed money often, he would always make a point to, to let them know he was a bad risk. <laughs> you know, I learned another thing, if, if you'll bear with me. I, um, I found a letter in there with the name of the author crossed out, telling a story of how my father had said he supported the Soviet Union because this letter writer had had a serious argument with my father about it. And in fact, it was the last conversation they'd had, and they had been old friends. Well, the story that he told about the argument allowed me to identify 
who this person must have been. Because this same individual told me that same anecdote many years before I read about it in the FBI file, when I was just visiting him in, in Hollywood. He, of course, at the time had no idea that I would ever know that he had informed on my father because you couldn't read an FBI file until the Freedom of Information Act. And he'd since died, and my father had died. But I've often wondered, when he lied to me and told me that he and my father had been close friends and he couldn't understand what had gone wrong and he loved my father, and I believed him sincerely when he said it, I couldn't understand if he, I couldn't totally believe that he was lying to me. I couldn't divorce the thought that he may have just forgotten that he did something like that, that he somehow could rationalize away the consequences of what he had done. Enough time had passed. And people who are capable of informing are also capable of telling themselves other things, you know. Uh, that may or may not be the truth. To say that it's good guys and bad guys is impossible for me to do. Maybe because I experienced it as a child, uh, didn't know about politics, I, all I saw was that the difference between the so-called good guys and bad guys was microscopic. And until the time came to make a stand, you really couldn't tell uh, the people who informed them, people who didn't. And that's because most people are incapable of behaving well. When, when fear strikes, people do not behave well. And when you divorce the, the ideology from the, the specific fight that was going on at the time, that human factor remains. If fear can be so destructive in a society, if it always wins in some sense until it finally dies a natural death 15 years later. How do you handle it? What do you do about it? How do you get people to understand what it's like to be that scared, for instance, if they haven't lived through it? And I think one of the, one of the greatest problems that maybe as a society we face is that most Americans living now, and certainly most white Americans, have never experienced that fear. So it's awfully hard to say, you know where you'd stand. So, so there, there are a number of threads to the story that you're telling. I mean, there's the larger story of the Red Scare. There's the more specific story of the Hollywood blacklist and what happened to your father. And there's also a personal story about you. I mean, the, the story that tends not to get told so much is what happened to the children of those who were blacklisted. And this is why he's a public radio producer. So I mean, you had said that when all this first started, you were three years old at the time. Right. And what you were, how old were you when you went down to Mexico? Did you say five? Uh, I just, I was about to turn six. Six years old. So, so you had a, a formative period of your life in Mexico, five Very years definitely. or so. Very and definitely. then, so, and just to, to pick up this chronology, where did you go after Mexico? After Mexico, we went to the only place we could afford to go, because my father had lost all whatever money he had left in Mexico. And that was to my mother's father's house in Manchester, New Hampshire, 
which is really in the middle of nowhere. Um, my father called it the armpit of the north, I think. <laughs> and he had no regard for it, you know. So he said he liked New Hampshire, except for the lack of, uh, of a nightlife, you know, past, past 8 o'clock. So, so this whole time, I mean, you're saying late 40s, throughout the 1950s, the, the Red Scare was very much well, in effect me, at that time. Well, let me add to the fact that when we went to New England, a place that my father had every reason to believe nobody would care who he was. It was that far removed from Hollywood and the movie business in Washington. It was in New Hampshire that he was investigated and actually called before a committee. Hmm. And it was a committee run by the Attorney General of the state of New Hampshire because there was still a lot of mileage that a politician could get out of being an active anti-communist. So, so did people who were living near you, your neighbors, did they know about your family's history? Well, first of all, they knew that we were in town, and that's how the attorney general found out that my father was in town. So somebody who was close to our family informed them. Were you aware of people who were suspicious Oh, of yes, you? absolutely. I mean, I... As, as somebody who grew up as an outsider because of politics, I knew a lot about what happens when you're an outsider. So in Mexico, I was, I was an outsider not because I was a communist, but because I was a gringo. And then when we returned to the United States, I was an outsider because people knew I'd been in Mexico, and so they had some disparaging things to say about my Mexican nationality, which I, I did not have. <laughs> So, uh, you know, and as you, as you're, as you grow up, you, what looks like hate that's coming from the person who's insulting you begins to look more and more like fear. Mm -hmm. The fear of being seen to be close to you in any way, so. Um, Wait, so there, so as you were, as you, once you had moved to New Hampshire, what was, what were your relationships like with the kids around you? depended upon uh, the situation. My brother was beaten up by some high school kids. He was older. Uh, at one point, I protested against the showing of a movie at my high school, which was very pro the House and American Activities Committee. So that became a headline in the local newspaper, the Manchester Union Leader. I was a junior in high school at the time. so. It was communists in Central High School. Uh, <clears throat> people drove by the house. Uh, a rock was thrown at the window. Didn't go through it. Must have been an early form of storm windows. <laughs> um, the governor of the state of New Hampshire, I was told, had gotten our names. And one of us, who was a senior, uh, was not able to get into any of the colleges he deserved to get into the following year. And, and of course, the Manchester Union leader, for those who may have heard of it, was perhaps the most reactionary newspaper in America at that time. And did you have, did you have kids who came up to you and confronted you about this? Not, not, in, not in my school. And I think the reason for that, and it's one of the many reasons why I, I marvel at my mother, uh, who was not herself political, but she had a conscience, and she also was made out of really good stuff. I think what she did was she went to some of my teachers at the high school and said, if you so much as cause a ruckus or say anything about the situation in class to these kids, I will have your neck. Um, she, however, could not get a job in her own hometown teaching because she was known 
as the wife of a so-called communist, so no one would hire her. And she had to find a job about a half an hour's drive away from home and, you know, leave at the crack of dawn. Well, when we were talking the other day, you mentioned that uh, there was at least one neighborhood kid, a boy, who, who threatened you, threatened to kill you. That was uh, <clears throat> in the impressionable years. <laughs> that was when I was about four or five years old. We had a next-door neighbor uh, whose name was Tommy. I, I choose not to name names, so <laughs> it just seems wrong to name somebody's name. Yeah. I should have learned something. At least from this. But uh, his name was Tommy, and Tommy was a thug. He was a, a, a gifted thug. I, I'd have to say, in retrospect, he was remarkable thug because he grew up many years later to be one of the people who was involved in the kidnapping of Frank Sinatra Jr. in Las Vegas. But Tommy loved to threaten me. And he loved to brag about what an outlaw he was also. And he came from a family, but there was a lot of drinking as well. And I'm sure he was an abused kid. But he was bigger than I was. And he threatened to kill me once or twice. Um, and at that age, of course, I, I believed him. I vaguely remember that I was given some ammunition to fight him by my older brother, who said, Whatever he says, you say, I know you are, but what am I? <laughs> that wasn't too effective, but the other, the other thing he did was he taught me how to spell the word communist. Because he said, if anybody calls you a communist, you say, I can spell it. Can you? <laughs> so on the on the level at which you know major ideological battles are fought, uh, a childhood, the, the the kids may have been more honest than the parents, you know, in, in terms of what they were going through. It was a traumatic time. And so, and, did did you talk with your with your father about any of this though this whole time that you were growing up? Well, I mentioned earlier that my father was not. Uh, eager to share anything about his past. And I just had a very strong feeling that he didn't want to go there. And as any former children in the room know, we spend a lot of our time as children taking care of our parents, too, just as they're taking care of us. And if you know you shouldn't, if something is going to make somebody very upset, you don't do it. And he didn't want to talk about that period. It may have been because it just brought up too many feelings for a man with a heart condition that would not be good to be feeling. But what you're also saying then is there was silence in your household. I mean, it was, there was this huge unspoken subject. There were many different kinds of silence, I'd have to say. It, to the extent that silence is, the, let's say, the language of fear, it took many forms in my life. When I was very young, the silence was something that was palpable. It was, something is wrong here and nobody is talking about it. And I think the reason is that parents, my parents, perhaps parents in general, could not begin to explain a situation like this to a child. What do you say? Has no understanding of politics. And if your father is facing the possibility of prison, at what age can you tell them that, yes, but it doesn't mean he's a bad person? Well, and the other thing is, I mean, if you're really young, you probably don't want to tell your kids anything because what if you just very innocently talk about this to a stranger? And what if you also feel 
that you have subjected your family to enormous consequences because of what you simply cannot not believe in. And how do you feel about that? And can you allow yourself to feel even the least bit sorry? You know, I mean, to the extent that you then open yourself up, this was not a generation that wore their hearts on their sleeve. Now, I, know, I know you've talked with other children of other blacklisted writers, Hollywood figures. Uh, are there common experiences here? I, let me step back for just a second and say that I think it's important that the children of the blacklist be able to tell their story. And I'm a little discouraged that there haven't been more who have been prepared to do it. Partly because it is an historic event, and I think before a major historic confrontation can assume human dimensions, you have to look at it in terms of its impact on families as well as on a society. And it may take three generations before enough of the stuff that is only part of that moment filters away and you get a more human kind of story to it. And I think the children witnessed this whole period, not politically, but uh, as the kind of trauma that, that befalls so many cultures at so many times and can befall the states yet again. So I wish that they would tell their story. But knowing enough of them to maybe mildly generalize, I'd say that having gone through trauma, where many things were often not talked about, many of them are still struggling with how they really feel about what they went through. On the one hand, you want to be loyal to your parents and you want to adopt their politics because that's what seems to be the most important thing to them. But on the other hand, that's not what you're experiencing as a child. And maybe it's also the fact that people who are traumatized tend not to want to talk about their trauma, whatever the nature of the trauma might be. You know, a lot of uh, survivors of wars don't, don't want to discuss it. I think there's a lot of healing whenever we do get together as a group, and there are rare moments when we might gather for a panel or something, uh, where we feel we're very much part of a tribe, you know, that we belong to each other in a way that you, you do when you've gone through something together. How, um, do, you, how do you think this uh, has shaped you? Used to be six feet tall and blonde. <laughs> <laughs> It definitely has shaped me, or misshaped me, in the sense that I don't have any sense of home. There's no one place that I ever feel a strong attachment to. You lived in Boston for 40 years. It was 40 years of meaningful work and close and wonderful relationships with people, but it wasn't something that felt like home. And I know there are a lot of people who have that experience, and any military brat will tell you that their sense of home. So I think that at any moment my life might be turned upside down. And so there's certain kinds of attachments I try not to form. I've worked in media for 40 years, but always as a freelance. I did get one staff job, but uh, that was toward the end of my career. But mostly I didn't want to be attached to any particular. I wanted to be on the outside looking in. 
And I think I always got a little nervous anytime anybody new walked into a room. So, you, you, so. you've always been suspicious? Why do you say that? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say that. <laughs> Suspicious? No. As a matter of fact, I think that people given an opportunity to tell their story and to explore with somebody their contradictions and their feelings, to get past the things they argue about and get to the things they can talk about or confess to, then people are at their best. And when, a, when an entire society uh, in, in a conflicted time is deprived of the opportunity of being able to talk about things and to develop some kind of community of trust and to exchange personal details of what you're going through, unless that happens, ideology and fear can always separate people very quickly. And to the extent that there's relevance, of uh, this story to what's going on now, uh, that's, that for me is the risk, that we can become so polarized that we become almost afraid that we will not be identified as a member of one side or the other. That feeling that, that was so easily manipulated by the, the McCarthy's that People would sometimes ask me, like after 9-11, so is it going to happen again? Do you think it's going to happen again? Even now, is it going to happen again? And my answer usually is, I'll, I'll know it's time to leave or it's too late when I'm afraid of my neighbor and my neighbor is afraid of me. To pick up the, the personal thread here, uh, when did your father die? He died in 19, 1962, just a year before you could say the blacklist was, was over. The thaw was clearly in the air during the um, presidential race. Uh, Kennedy even said that he would reverse, John Kennedy, that he would reverse uh, the uh, loyalty oath that had been instituted during the time of the Cold War by President Truman. He had reasons to be hopeful, and, and in fact, he said that if he ever wrote another book, he had the title, and uh, the title was How I Killed Hugh G. Foster, the pseudonym that he managed to make a rather small living off of writing for some magazines that did not know who Hugh G. Foster really was. So he never got out from under the blacklist. Um, he would have been absolutely pleased as punch uh, if he had. Could I say one more thing about my father that I learned from the FBI file? This blew me away. Um, somebody wrote to J. Edgar Hoover saying, I am sitting at a dinner table with Gordon Kahn, who just came back from the men's room, and he's saying some things about you that I just don't believe at all, Mr. Hoover. He was saying the kinds of things that communists use to discredit their enemies. But what did he say? Well, I learned from my mother that he told her when he came back from Washington at the time of the hearings, he was having dinner at the very same restaurant that J. Edgar Hoover frequented for personal parties. And he had run into J. Edgar Hoover in the men's room while J. Edgar Hoover was in drag. 
The person whom he told this to was a friend. But in order to prove his loyalty to Hoover, and perhaps to curry some favor, he wrote Hoover and said, I don't believe any of this. And uh, I want you to know that I'm a loyal American. And if there's any way I can be of further service, let me know. My father never told me this story. And although other people may have known this about J. Edgar Hoover, nobody ever talked about it. But he was the only person I can think of who had nothing to lose if he had. He never used it against J. Edgar Hoover at a time, especially toward the end of the blacklist, when I think he would have gotten some attention for it. So whatever the temptation might have been, it was just not in his character to do that. And Hoover, of course, knew. How do you look back on your father's life? And I assume you're, you're very proud of him, obviously. Do you, was this a tragic life? No. When he died, he left behind something in his own handwriting on his desk that my mother found. I stand before the tribunal of my own mind. And so she wanted that to be his epitaph. He stood before the tribunal of his own mind. And I, I thought at first when I heard that, and I was 17 when he died, so I was, you know, really, that meant a lot to me to know that, and I was extremely proud of him, as you say. As I got older, that image began to have a chill to me because for a man who fought for something he believed in, what a terribly lonely position that must have felt like to be before the tribunal of your own mind. Tribunals make judgments. Tribunals are way up there. Maybe they're demanding. So all I know is that he, he always maintained a sense of humor. He never talked about what was going on. And I think he was at peace with the decision that he made. He may have felt that the family might have been hurt, but. He didn't live long enough to see my neurotic complications and problems. So, so he might have assumed, you know, valedictorian, going to Harvard, great. You know, everything's fine. And, and, and so was my brother. That was how hard we, we fought to, you know, give him something to be proud of. For me, I think I wouldn't change a thing. I think I was very fortunate in that I had the example of an honest man as a father, and that was a sheer gift. I don't know if I would do the same under the same circumstances, I can only hope so, if I were the father and not the son. What about your mother? How, had, how did she respond to all of this? She lived to be 99 years old. Like him, she did not have any doubts in her mind that, about what the right or the wrong thing to do was. She was a teacher for many, many years, and long after her death, students of hers with their children and then grandchildren, uh, I'd run into, and they would tell me what an incredible teacher she was. Here she was in this community uh, that was kind of benighted in a small town in New Hampshire, very rural community, and she was this creature who had come from a larger world and she excited them about the possibilities that they could go anywhere and do anything. So she, she lived a very fulfilled life. I did a movie when she was still alive and I interviewed her for it and, and I asked her, looking back on it all, what do you feel about it? She said, that's the way things will always be. 
as long as people are the way they are. <laughs> it's quite a sobering consideration. It seems to me that if that's true, the best we can do is to try to head the bad stuff off at the pass before it gets to be too late. To continue to uh, try to tell as many personal stories as possible about this so that people can identify with it and say, at least ask themselves, well, what would I do if it were me? You said earlier that when, when you were younger, this whole subject of what your father had done was radioactive. You, you didn't want to go anywhere near that. At a certain point, obviously, you went full hog and you know wanted to uncover this whole history. You ended up doing a... Uh, uh, radio docudrama about it, and you're now doing a play about it. What, what changed for you? Why did you feel like you had to go and actually uncover this history? Deadlines. <laughs> uh, I did the radio show because I got funding, and I realized I, I had to do it. I mean, that's probably the way I engineer myself into, into you know, getting going on things. It's a story that, that shaped me. I didn't want to deal with what was in my father's FBI file for many years because it made me realize that along with all the feelings I had, there was also some doubt. You know, I mean, if you want to talk about it as a father-son story, uh, when you have somebody who is that prominent in a way, it's the, it's the problem that children have with famous actor fathers, for instance. You know, how do you define yourself in the midst of this? I was always loyal to his politics, but I was not at heart a political person in the same way that he was. And I had to learn to accept that about myself, you know, that I do things in my own way. Because he died when I was 17, I was deprived of that wonderful gift of being able to be on some sort of an, uh, of a peer level with your father, where two adults are talking. And where, if you're lucky, your father might even ask for your advice, you know? <laughs> I've had people tell me the most meaningful moment they had was when, you know, their father asked them to fix something. <laughs> That's just my particular story. I know other people who went through this uh, who uh, had perhaps uh, too long a history uh, with, their, with their father and um, are still struggling with it. And I'll tell you, some of the saddest stories of all that I've heard have come from the people who are children of the people who name names. Mm -hmm. I mean, in a way, I had it easy in that, you know, you didn't, you didn't bring this on yourself and you, you sensed what was right and what was wrong and there was some small comfort in that. But if you were the child of someone who was already compromised and you had to go along on that ride for a very long time, that led to a lot of dysfunction, a lot of dysfunction. I wish we could hear those stories, too. And, and believe me, they would be stories that would be in some way identical to the stories you, you would hear from the children uh, that survived any kind of uh, trauma, including, and this is, this is kind of a surprise to me, uh, children of alcoholics. At one point, I started to attend uh, Al-Anon for reasons that, that uh, actually had to do with stuff that was going on in my family. And it was the first time I heard stories from people that sounded like some of the things that I went through as a child. And I, 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 you know, I said, I, I came here you know, as a parent wanting to understand a child who was in trouble, and instead I was hearing stories of children who had to deal with parents who were in, 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 in trouble. And, and I 
could identify with the children. And I realized that what we did have in common was the silence that we were talking about before. That trauma where you feel that as a child, your parents are endangered by something they don't talk about, that you can't see, that it can make their behavior unpredictable, that you seem to live in some kind of isolation, not a lot of people come to the house, and that as a child, you feel an enormous desire to make things better, only you can't talk about what it is that's going on, and you have no power. So Tony, one last question before we open it up to the audience here. Um, it's not an accident that this exhibit <coughs> is at the Jewish Museum here. Why were so many Jews involved sort of on that end of the blacklist in Hollywood? Boy, this is an interesting discussion. <laughs> you know, you will hear so many different opinions, and I don't happen to have a, a, a deep conviction of my own about this. Anti-Semitism is anti-Semitism, and as long as I'm alive, there will always be anti-Semitism, and I, I will try never to be surprised when it pops up. But in Hollywood, there were as many Jews being named as there were Jews who were doing the naming or running the studios. You could say entertainment was, to an extent, you know, Jewish in, 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 from a business point of view in origin. Um, and as, as the child of uh, the blacklist, I went through my entire youth and early adulthood never experiencing any anti-Semitism. I experienced anti-communism, anti-Mexicanism, and anti-Americanism <laughs> for Mexicans. But I did not experience, I figured, you know, what a luxury it would be to be called, to, you know, um, the same thing, you know, finally be identified as, as one kind of bad. So uh, a Jew would, would cover it perfectly. In fact, the one time that I found that I had a strong opinion about the, a Jewish community and belonging was when the Jewish community in New Hampshire wouldn't welcome us. Uh, it was largely a business community and they didn't want to have any association with me or my father. Funny that I forgot to mention that part <laughs> earlier. Uh, but yeah, um, so do I think it was anti-Semitic or there were elements of anti-Semitism? Yes, I'm, I'm not saying it's irrelevant, but I am saying that it wasn't relevant in my case. Yeah, I'm guessing that we have some questions here, maybe some personal <laughs> stories as well. Um, so let's go here, let's go right there. You mentioned that uh, you thought your dad was maybe a communist. What, what is that? I don't know what that means in the 40s. What does it mean to be a communist in America? Well, in the 40s, it was different from what it was in the 30s. Right. <clears throat> in the 30s, you had a country here that looked like it might fail. And you had another country, the Soviet Union, that looked it might, that it might succeed economically. And that was when a lot of people joined the Communist Party in Hollywood, but also elsewhere. And they were, they were for women's rights, although not in any way the way they are now. They were for hiring blacks. They were for union organization. My father was one of the people who helped organize the screenwriters union. But when the definition of communist in, in the very late 40s and early 50s was pro-Soviet Union in a war that's probably coming, therefore traitor, uh, somebody who wants to undermine and destroy the United States, that in no way described a, 
what his temperament was, or the temperament or the convictions of any of the people that I knew in Hollywood from that period. Let's go back there. I, maybe I misunderstood you, uh, but early on when you were talking and you were talking about the difference between the people who named names and the people who didn't name names, and you said basically there were no good guys and there were no bad guys and nobody can really judge what you're going to do when you're faced with fear. Um, to me, that sounds like you're giving those people a pass. Um, and, I, and, I, and I say that because to me, it seems as if there were bad guys, you know, there were good people and there were bad people in, in that particular situation. And if you were to liken it to what happened in Germany during World War II, you could make the same argument that yes. fear yes. is such that, yes. you know, why judge these poor people because they fear for their lives and they fear for their lives? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll just jump in please, because I heard it differently. What I heard well, is before that crucial test is you're presented with that, you don't know who the good guys and the bad guys are. Okay. I mean, in hindsight, you... That's not what I heard him Okay. So. Uh, well, first of all, let me apologize if my remarks were unfocused at the beginning. It's often hard for me to, to know exactly what aspect of this story is of significance to other people. So sometimes if I try to cover the history, I may shortchange the more personal side of it. But what I, what I meant to say was that Yes, there are good guys and bad guys in terms of the consequences of their action. If destroying a person's livelihood to save your own is, is a bad thing, there were bad people. Um, but I'm saying that in terms of what lessons you draw from that kind of behavior in the hopes that it won't recur, then what are you left with that actually can help determine your behavior. Um, if it's to try to identify good guys and bad guys, rather than to, to, to look at what it is they're responding to, to the fear, then you may not have done very much to, to make the situation better. That's all. And I, I fully understand that if somebody has screwed up your life, your feeling that he is an enemy is, is a totally natural. There were some people, including Dalton Trumbo, who was one of the main figures in this, who actually ended up saying everybody was a victim. And there were some members of his, some colleagues of his and cohorts who very strongly disagreed. Somebody once joked that uh, the blacklist had led to the invention of jaywalking in Hollywood, because if you saw somebody who, you know, had been on the other side years and years later, you'd walk to the other side of the street so I, I don't know if I've answered your question, but I don't mean to, to say that therefore everybody should be forgiven. I, I, I'm simply saying as what lessons have I drawn from this that may be useful, applicable, you know, by the time somebody feels they have to name somebody's name, it's too late already. Let's go in the middle there. How do you think your father's career would have been different had he not been blacklisted? Do you think he would have written some blockbusters? an Oscar, transitioned into television, what do you think would have happened? What a great question. <laughs> I know what I would have liked him to do. Get the hell out of Hollywood. He didn't belong there, I don't think. He wrote 40 movies or so, but that, that wasn't what he really wanted to do. He started out as a newspaper man in New York. He was one of the best copy editors in New York. 
He could take a story and type it out, you know, boom, there it would be without a single error on it. He loved writing essays. He was an original and a stylist and a funny, funny man. If you've ever read S.J. Perlman, that's the way my father talked. He didn't say somebody died. He would say he was, you'll forgive the expression, snapped to Jesus. <laughs> a doctor wasn't a doctor. He was a leech master. <laughs> you know, poverty becomes a Jew as garlic ribbon becomes a white horse. Hmm. This is a communist? <laughs> oh, and he wore a monocle. So, I mean, he was a total, one of the, one of the students of this period, written a number of books about it, said, you know what your father was? I said, uh, I'm still trying to figure that out. No, I, he was a bohemian. There was a, there was a, and he, actually he came from Hungary. He was a naturalized uh, a Hungarian citizen, came to America when he was six. <laughs> but he was, uh, he was an original. They needed people in, the, in 1930 to give the talkies something to say, and so a lot of people from the newspaper. But, but he was tempted. Comfort, a 14-room house, you know, rugs up to your lips. <laughs> I thought you said that when people were testifying, there yes. was a principled stance against what the committee could do, and you thought that was a mistake. Well, I, anytime I find myself saying somebody should have done something, <laughs> I gotta, I gotta think, wait a second. I'm not, all I know is that the strategy clearly backfired in that it gave the committee the ammunition to say, you see how communists behave? They won't even say they're communists. So you can't trust them and you can't trust anybody who says they're not a communist either. It, it, it was, it played right into their hands and the publicity eventually uh, worked against them. I don't know, I, 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 maybe that was the only thing they could do at the time. I mean, when you're in the heat of an ideological battle, you're fighting black and white. There were, you know, there weren't too many colors until later. So what, what I think might have been an interesting strategy might have been to say, um, yeah, what well, members of the Communist Party, what do you want to know about the Communist Party? Besides the fact that it's legal, at that point, still was in the United States. But I, maybe they wanted to destroy the committee. I could, wouldn't blame them at all if they did, and that they thought defying it might, might be uh, an effective thing to do. Your best is as good as mine. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Um, have you ever had, had the opportunity to speak with your older brother about your past? And if so, do you look back and see it uh, in, through a similar lens? What a great question. Mm -hmm. Yes, we have. We often do. I think we're, our memories are very similar. And our, the kind of emotional impact of all of this, very much the same, I think. But temperamentally, were quite different. He's much better at showing his anger. And maybe the most important difference, he pointed this out to me. He's three years older. And he said, Tony, by the time you became conscious of what was going on around you, the family was already in the thick of this. 
So what you experienced, which included the fear that I couldn't articulate in the sense we were in danger and all that kind of stuff, you thought that was normal. That was the way life goes, and it's not a very happy proposition. I, I can even remember doing the kind of thinking, again, talk about alcoholism in family, where I, I would dissociate from my body. I would just try to think about how I could just float away. But he knew happy times. He had memories of having lovely walks with my father and stopping and looking at some old junked car and talking about it. Very vivid. And so he said, I knew there was an Eden. We were kicked out of some place we shouldn't have been. He also had had a very hard time staying with the same job. <laughs> um, what happened to him, and this is another profound difference, is that he got blacklisted. My brother did. He was in the public health corps during the time of the Vietnam War, knowing Spanish fluently, being a doctor interested in infectious diseases. He wanted to be assigned to uh, study tropical diseases out of the country. And they kept on passing over him and sending somebody else who was less qualified until he finally said, what's the matter? Why, why are you passing me over? Have I done, am I not as qualified as I think I should be? And he said, there's some guys, if you want to know, there's some guys in Washington you need to talk to. So he went to Washington to the Health, Education, and Welfare Department, which had its own investigative agency. This wasn't the FBI. And they asked my brother, was your father a member of the Communist Party? And at that point, my father had been dead for about eight years. So he said, listen, if you want to know my politics, and this gets back to, like, how should they have handled it? If you want to know what I believe in, I'm happy to tell you. But don't make me name my father to prove that I can be sent overseas to cure somebody's illness. And uh, they say, well, this interview is over. You're not cooperating. So that, that um, ethic, that, that technique of naming names really went deep, informing on, you know, I ran across a wonderful uh, sentence that my father wrote at one point. Uh, he said, a writer should write everything but denunciations. <laughs> and I think that would have been a better epitaph, maybe, you know, <laughs> when I think about it. But that, that really, um, that was how, you know. I have a question for just people in the audience. Are, are there any personal stories of the blacklist of people here? Just curious. I have a question. Of all the um, allegorical movies about the blacklist era, do any of them resonate with you, or do you have a favorite? Well, actually, I do, and it's unfortunate, because it was written, produced, and directed by uh, people who name names. And, and that's on the waterfront. Hmm. The fact of the matter is that although it's a great drama in, in terms of the, you know, the story that it tells in the movie, it was written to justify how courageous it was to be an informer. And Elia Kazan was the director. And it says something about my father that he knew Elia Kazan. He may have been named by Elia Kazan, I'm not sure. but, but uh, he had no stomach for 
on the, on the waterfront. And I loved it. I didn't know at the point what the history behind this was. I said, I called him Gordon. He liked to be called by his first name. I said, Gordon, I said, it's an amazing movie, isn't it? And he said, <laughs> but he never said, don't ever see that movie. Or, don't you understand that it's, it's really anti-communist propaganda? That was not the, he was not that kind of ideologue. And I don't, again, this gets back to the political history, but I doubt very much that any of the people they went after constituted a threat. It's possible, but I think it's very unlikely. Back there. My, my dad was born in 1905, came from Russia, and he was an artist. And I don't know much, but my brother said he, he, uh, he had much leanings as a socialist or communist. He was an artist. And my brother said that they, somebody came to the house and wanted to talk to my dad. Now, nothing this would have been when? Of being, of being a communist. No, I mean, what, what time did somebody come to the house? That was in the 50s. In the 50s. Yeah. Right. So, and he really saw the, he came out of the pogroms in Russia. So as you were saying, a lot of the people that came to this country, including the Hollywood writers, had, had were Jewish or knew yes. of persecution yes. and saw the Communist Party as more of a, well, a, a, sa a salve for uh, tyrants and uh, making things better. I don't think they wanted to many of usurp our country, but they like the, some of the philosophy of it. Well, you know, I, I don't know much about my father's background growing up, but I do know that my, my grandmother, his mother, uh, voted for Eugene V. Debs, uh, but she also got into real estate. And I mean, she would be the kind of person who would say, uh, we must have a revolution, but real estate last. <laughs> <laughs> Which is very Jewish, right? And that's kind of Jewish humor, so a certain degree of irony. And that's probably what kept my father, he didn't live long, but it probably helped keep him as alive as he, as he was. We are yeah. almost out of time. One last question back well, there. Well, Steve, I just want to respond. So I had no leftists in my family, uh, but I went to Marquette, which had its own repression, we'll call it. And uh, so we set up a bookstore, left this bookstore in the 60s. Yeah. So lots of folks came who, from all sorts of places. And one of the things this really fine exhibit doesn't put quite as much emphasis on as I think it might, is the economic basis for the witch hunt. So for example, one family that, that came were ex, this guy was the education director of the largest union in the, in the state, Ellis Chambers, UAW 248. They were exiled to Canada. Mm -hmm. um, the, the president of the was sent to prison when UI came. So there was, after World War II, there was a big economic struggle and a lot of left progressive movements. And McCarthy, it's no uh, coincidence, I think, that he was in Wisconsin. Uh, so that's lots of other stories I can tell you. People yeah. who underground, et cetera. But, uh, I do want to say Robbie Mirapol said I should say hello uh, to the speaker. Uh, and uh, uh, I had a comment, and I invite your comment. Uh, I watched the front line uh, on uh, Charlottesville and the neo-Nazis, it was on a couple weeks ago, anyone can see it. And it was just was stunning to me to see the contrast between J. Edgar Hoover personally and the FBI, 300, 3,000 pages to deal with your father who was 
basically innocent of anything. With the, when Charlottesville happened, there were organized neo-Nazis, violent people, uh, military practice that came from 35 states there. And the FBI didn't even advise the chief of police about any of that. And you can, I invite you all to see the front line. You can see what this investigative reporter found that some of the US military and the FBI seemingly have not found right Yes, yes, I know, and that's, I, I've, I've heard stories about that, and I know that gearing up to see, you know, right-wing extremism as a, as a serious organized threat is in its infancy, I think, you know. I, I just, I have one, I've never really talked about this publicly, but to the extent that we're also public radio um, agents of one kind or other, I think I need to, to tell you this story. Um, I was blacklisted too, uh, like my brother, but in a different way. When I got the funding to do the series that I did on NPR uh, called Blacklisted, uh, it happened to be a sizable enough grant at the time to an independent production that it it appeared uh, on the budget of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. While I was in the midst of producing the show, I got a call from my bank saying uh, the, their check has just bounced. And I, I said, what's up? I said, well, they just bounced. I said, it's, it's from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. They're not insolvent. They said, talk to them. So I called up and I said, what's going on? I was in Los Angeles at the time and I was living in Boston, so I didn't have much access to anything other than the phone. And they said, we can't talk to you about it. And uh, after repeated calls, I got only as far as they're saying, you'll have to speak to the inspector general about this. And I didn't even know that there was an inspector general in the United States, so I didn't quite know whom they were referring to. All I know is this Gogol play, The Inspector General, <laughs> and, um, the movie that Danny Kaye was in. I said, well, I don't, I don't want to talk to him. You know, <laughs> What's that going to accomplish? But it was clear that they were freezing me out, and that what they were doing was in violation of the contract, and I could not believe it until I realized that it was the beginning of the uh, Gingrich Congress. Gingrich was going after, he was looking, it seems to me, for a scapegoat. He first went after liberals, that didn't seem to work. He then went after, I think, single mothers, that didn't work. And then he went after public broadcasting. And all of a sudden, that got some traction, as they say. And uh, <coughs> I, when I finally wrote to them and said, you've got to, tell me what's going on, you know, or I may have to tell what's going on someplace else, and I don't want to, you know, but I could see the headlines, blacklisted is blacklisted. <laughs> and uh, they said, well, they challenged me that, you know, you're doing this, that, and the other thing. No foundation to it. So no explanation offered, but about three weeks after this started, the payment was renewed. I never got a story out of them. I am, in a sense, forever grateful to the CPB for letting me know what it's like to be blacklisted. Mm -hmm. Because I'll tell you, there was a part of me that said, what did I do wrong? 
I must have done something horrible. I'm a bad person. I quickly censored those thoughts, but I had them. And I feel that I'm like a little goldfish in a room with all the lights out, and everybody else is an orca. And there's this huge thing going on, and I'm, you know, food. That's, I'm just, that's a terrible feeling. And I'm sure my father felt that. Well, on that sobering note, um, thank you so much. this opportunity this was it was just fascinating so thank and thank you all